0: Well, this morning, we are starting the Gospel of Matthew. And I don't uh, care what kind of background you have, Christian home, Muslim home, atheist home, any kind of home, your whole life, you have been told who Jesus is. And all of us come with this baggage of what we think he's like, how he acts, what he does. And he has given us four Gospels to show us and to tell us about himself he chose his biographers he chose the way that he wanted to come into this planet and to fulfill prophecies and we take a lot of things for granted and so the first thing that we want to do is we want to throw away the baggage we want to come to the gospel of Matthew and we want to hear from him who he is and how he wants to be represented I notice also that we throw around words like gospel, and not everybody knows what that is. The word gospel just means good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And there are four gospels. Three of them, I'm going to use some more fancy words, are called the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are same Different perspectives of the same thing, revealing his earthly life and who he is, and they have unique viewpoints. John is not considered one of the synoptic gospels it's on its own because it points to him as God in the flesh. It's a different perspective that is upward and not horizontal. When we talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is so important for us to understand that these different perspectives work together because without them, we can't get a complete picture of who Jesus is. Matthew, the gospel that we're starting today, is written to a Jewish audience. Its emphasis is on the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus is the King of Israel, a fulfillment of those things that were foretold. It has more Old Testament quotes than any of the other Gospels because it is speaking to a Jewish audience. Now, the Gospel of Mark, that is written to a completely different audience, completely different flavor. It's written to the Gentiles, specifically Romans. That's why you don't have any genealogies, very few Old Testament references, because what does a Roman care about any of those things? It's a Gospel of action, the Gospel of Mark. He uses the words immediately and then over and over and over again to keep the narrative running very quickly. It's also the shortest gospel, kind of written to guys like me. Luke, however, is written to a different Gentile audience. It's written in very fancy and poetic Greek. In fact, there's a lot of Greek words in the gospel of Luke that are nowhere found in the rest of the New Testament because we believe that Luke was a medical doctor. He was a very intelligent person. He portrays Jesus as the Son of Man. Twenty-six times the Gospel of Luke uses this term, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And then you have the Gospel of John, which speaks specifically about the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is God in the flesh. It's written to the believer. It's written to Christians to encourage us to understand who Jesus is. What many people don't know about these four Gospels, though, is that they're also represented differently in Scripture, in fact, in Ezekiel and Revelation, there speaks of how many cherubim around the throne? Four. There's four cherubim around the throne room of God, and those four cherubim have how many faces? You guessed it, four different faces. There is a man's face, there's a lion's face, an ox's face, and an eagle's face. And many of the founding fathers of the faith, applied this to the four Gospels. That Matthew, speaking of Christ the King, was represented as a man. Mark, the suffering servant, as the lion. Luke, the ox, the son of man. And John, the eagle. In fact, in the 1611 King James Bible, you'll see these caricatures are written on the entry places of the Gospels. I find that very fascinating. What is the point of all this? It's to understand that the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, every single word is pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That all of human history, from Adam and Eve all the way to the last person born at the end of the millennial kingdom, is all pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. I pointed out these uh, seraphim and cherubim, to cherubim more specifically. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10. It says, as for the likeness of their faces, each one had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. And then in Revelation, it repeats it in verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third... Living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Everything is pointing to Jesus. Everything in the entirety of Scripture is coming to these moments on the first few pages of the book of Matthew. I mean, let's go to the throne room of God himself. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father on high, the four cherubim there with the four faces, speaking of the four Gospels that are all pointing to who he is. Let's go back to the original tabernacle. Even how the tabernacle was overlaid spoke of who Jesus was. The veil between the Holy of Holies and the inner courtyard and the outer courtyard, they all speak of Jesus. The, temper, the tabernacle and temple furniture, the table of showbread, the incense, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, they all point to Jesus, even the robes of the high priest, his breastplate, the bells, all of it is speaking of the Lord. What about the prophets themselves, the prophets who foretold of His coming and their messages of deliverance and God's faithfulness, all of it fulfilled in Christ? What about even the miracles Every miracle in the Bible is speaking of Jesus. The manna from heaven, the Red Sea opening up, the vipers that bit the people of Israel in the, in, the, in the desert. They put the rod up and they wound that copper coil of the serpent around it, all pointing to deliverance in Jesus. Even the way that the tribes are laid out, Every single portion of Scripture is speaking about the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. One of my favorite all-time songs, is an old Christmas song, came out like five or six years ago, I remember. The, the word says, how many kings step down from their thrones? When we speak about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he steps down from the throne room of eternity. He steps down from the cherubim and the seraphim and the glassy sea, and he enters into humanity through one lady, through a gal named Mary, and becomes one of us. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into verse 1 together. Lord, we we pray for your anointing on your message this morning. We pray that we would grow closer to you and that we would see who you are the way that you want to reveal yourself to us. We pray that we would have a better understanding of your divine revelation to understand what it is to be a Christian, a Christ follower. We praise you and we thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just start with verse 1 by itself. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we immediately see the emphasis. Everything's pointing to Jesus but the emphasis here to the nation of Israel and to the Jews is that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why is this important? Well, way back, God made a promise to Abraham, and he made a promise to David that one of their descendants was going to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the deliverer of Israel. But not only would he be a deliverer of Israel, he's is going to be a deliverer of the Gentile of the entire world. World. This is the culmination of every promise that God has ever made. Right there in the very first line of this gospel. God had promised Abraham that in his family all the nations of the world would be blessed. And he promised that from the scepter of David, the kingdom of David, there would be a kingdom established forever. Now, I want to put in a side note there that these prophecies that Matthew is going to be referring to and speaking of are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls centuries before Jesus' birth. They've been, they've been dated, just proving how miraculous these fulfilled promises are. Now, we're going to go into a lot of names, a genealogy, which to you and I doesn't mean anything. It's why it's not found in Mark and it's not found in John, because what does it have to do with anything? But we're going to see a lot of very important things. Here in the Gospel of Matthew, this genealogy is Joseph's legal lineage, going all the way back, proving that Jesus is from David's line, that he is eligible and he is the fulfillment of the king of Israel. Now, it's his legal lineage because this genealogy at the very end is very clear that Joseph did not beget He did not begot Jesus. Joseph is Jesus' stepfather. That's why in the Gospel of Luke, you have his maternal lineage through his mom, showing that she is a descendant of David because the Lord just covers all his bases. We're not going to be allowing any room for error here. So we have the legal through the father. We have the maternal through Luke, all pointing that this is the king of kings. He's fulfilling that, that scripture. Now, let's read them together, shall we? In verses 2 through 17, we're just going to read all of them in one shot. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abuad, and Abuad begot Eliakim, And Eliakim begot Azar, and Azar begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eluid. Eluid begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Well, you know, we read through and we're like, man, did he butcher those names? Did he not? Nobody will know. (laughs) But the key is this, every single one of these people was a life. They were born, they grew up, they were raised, they had birthdays, they had holidays, they had bar mitzvahs and all that kind of stuff. They had dreams and aspirations and fears and trials, just like you and just like me, life after life after life, funeral after funeral, and birth after birth. And it's not just this lineage. Let's just think about it in terms of all humanity. From Adam all the way to the last person who's born in the Millennial Kingdom, Jesus places himself in the river of life, in the the tale of humanity. He's born just like the rest of us. But more importantly, in the nation of Israel, remember to the Jewish audience, if you are not able to trace your lineage back to David and Abraham, you cannot be king. How important is this to them? Even though it means so little to us in some ways. There's written in three different sections of 14, And it's an acrostic poem because this was meant to be memorized. It was memorized by Jews in the first century. Because when you were being challenged, how can you follow Jesus as the Messiah? They would, by verbatim, be able to defend it by giving this genealogy. It's meant to be memorized in a time when people don't read and very few would even have books if they did. And the Lord chooses these people. You know, we don't choose our family, do you? You were were born into the family you're in. But the Lord, He descended from on high. He chose these people. And then, who does He decide to write His biography? Matthew, a tax collector, the cast-off, the reject of society. And then He chooses these people to be in His lineage? In the first century, women are property. You don't have any rights You don't get to make your own decisions. You don't pick your own husband. Your family decides who you marry, and you're stuck with them forever, and you do what your husband says. It doesn't matter if you're in Greek culture, Jewish culture, or Roman culture. In all of the first century, this is the way it is. Less than property. And that being said, Jesus, in his genealogy, mentions four different women. And not only does he pick these ladies, they are some doozies. Tamar... She's listed in here as an adulteress. Rahab was the prostitute from Jericho, pagan Jericho, and Uriah's wife is Bathsheba, another adulteress listed here. And then you have Ruth. Ruth is not even a Jew. She's a Moabite. Remember, in the Old Testament, Moabites cannot even enter into the assembly of the Lord. You can't come in. You're not going to the tabernacle. You're not going to the temple. Not even the court of the Gentiles. Nope, you can't even get into the assembly. And then to climax that all, to put a cap on it, he picks this young girl who's just like every other girl in all of the nation of Israel, Mary, to be his mother. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out with Mary. Number one, in the Protestant church, meaning all churches that are not Catholic, we do a disservice. As a reaction to the overemphasis in Mary in the Catholic church, we diminish her all the too far we just diminish her too far she is a unique individual chosen by god she raised our lord the messiah the king of kings when he scraped his knee she took care of him when he's throwing up in the middle of the night she's the one getting up and cleaning it all up Feeding him and protecting him and worrying about him. What was Jesus' youth like? I don't know. Did he leave the milk out? I have no idea. But Mary knows because she was there. And so she should be looked on highly, but she is not a co-redemptress. She is not sinless. She is not perfect, and she's not a perpetual virgin. None of those things are found in the Scripture. Remember... We want to throw away our baggage that we come and our pretenses, and we just want to see what does the Lord reveal about Himself. That being said, the last thing that Mary's recorded saying in Scripture is, that is my beloved Son, and whatever He says, do it. Great words. Great words. What do we see about this genealogy? There's good, there's bad, there's everything in between, but we're reminded that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, many people know that verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, but they miss a phrase in verse 22 that's so important. I want to share it with you. In Romans three twenty-two, it says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Highlight this, for there is no difference. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. They're memorizing these verses, they're memorizing these names, they're memorizing them in sections, and the nation of Israel, the Jews that are become believers, are able to make a defense of the Lord's lineage because He is the King of Israel. This becomes even more important in 70 AD when the Romans come in and destroy the temple and they burn all of the genealogical records. They no longer exist. In fact, if you uh, follow Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities every once in a while, they'll say, well, this rabbi, he might be the Messiah, or this one might be the Messiah. And they have to do all kinds of intellectual gymnastics to try and chase the lineage back through a name to try and say that this guy's from this tribe and can go all the way back to King David. Not so with our Lord. He's kept this recorded and sealed forever because He is the King of kings. We're reminded that even though I'm going to emphasize the Lord's kingship and His divinity, that He is a man. He became a man. He was born a person. But He is God in the flesh. He is the fulfillment of all prophecy, and every portion of the Bible is pointing to Him at all times. And it's not just Scripture, but all things in creation speak of who He is. Let's read verses 18 through 23 together. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The Lord is going to use this humble Couple. Now, many commentators talk about how it was the dream of every young lady in Israel to have the Messiah, and they were all, no, that's just nonsense. What are your teenagers thinking of? You know, being popular, finding their place in the world, trying to be like everyone else. You know, Mary and Joseph weren't walking around every day figuring out if they're going to have the Messiah or not. They were just trying to start a family together. And do things like everyone else, but the Lord descended from heaven and chose them, and they are uniquely used individuals. This is how the king decides to make his arrival using a small, regular couple in a small town in a backwards country. In this portion of history, with this people and this tribe, this is how the king wants to make his arrival. And he's fulfilling thousands of years of prophecy in doing so. It's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 that's quoted here that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, Jesus, Emmanuel. It means God with us. Do not underestimate what this phrase means. It means that God is with us the king of kings the alpha omega the beginning and end the creator of the universe descends and becomes one of us and he calls us his friends god with us this is the king of who it says in jeremiah chapter 23 verses 5 and 6 behold the days are coming says the lord that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Remember, that's the emphasis here in Matthew. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. How can you read this? and be an all-millennialist. An all-millennialist is someone that believes the end times are either fulfilled historically or they're just allegory. This has never happened, but it's gonna. See, the king is gonna return, Jesus, the Lord, a second time, and he's going to rule and reign on this planet for a thousand years and all things will be well. And Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell in safely in the future. Yet, this king of kings... This almighty creator became a child. He was one of us. He is one of us. The scripture says he's acquainted with grief. I want you guys to understand the magnitude of what's being said here. The all-powerful creator of the universe in which all things consist and exist became weak, knows what it is to be sad knows what it is to be hurt, understands what it is to be hungry, understands what it is to be powerless. Now you may ask me, well, when does his divinity start and his humanity end, and where does his humanity end? and his div- I have no idea. Are you crazy? <laughs> he just reveals it to us as he sees fit. But when we study Jesus and his humanity, we also need to remember who he is. In Philippians chapter 2, it says about him that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, the eternal, of those on earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And every tongue will confess he is Lord when he returns and he sets all things right. And he became a child and he was raised and lived a life. He was God, he is God, he's alive. And we have a personal relationship with him, we follow him. We are Christians, we are like Christ, we are to follow him. And every single thing points to him. In fact, look at how he's revealed himself Just here in the first chapter, number one, we see that God has spoken through history. All of the history and all these genealogies that we just listed, we saw Jesus in every page. We see that God has spoken through dreams. He comes to Joseph. We know He has come to Mary. We know that He spoke through angels. Angels have come and revealed themselves and showed. Through Scripture, we see the fulfillment of prophecy from millennia and centuries past, And number five and most important, Emmanuel, God himself has revealed himself. What's the number one criticism that we get from atheists in the 21st century? If God is real, he will reveal himself. I ask, how many times do you want him to do it? I mean, over and over and over again. He's given us this multitude of evidence, and finally he did come and reveal himself. God's not silent. He's speaking over and over again. But this is what pains me. What pains me is when I get a Christian who comes to me, and wants to talk to me about, well, you know, maybe they found the table of showbread in some cave in Nigeria, and if we could just understand what it is, we'll have a better understanding of God. Or if we could just find the Ark of the Covenant, then we would really understand the history of what's going on here. I don't think you understand what we have in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. you understand the magnitude of this statement? All things were created through Jesus Christ, and He speaks to us Himself directly through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to tell you is this, is that if an Old Testament priest... Had what we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ, he would throw his robes and he would throw the furniture of the tabernacle into an ocean because he wouldn't need it. It's just a reflection, a shadow of what we have. You, you want, I want you to understand, when you drive away from here, and hopefully with your eyes open because you're driving, you pray to the Lord. Lord. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, through Jesus Christ and his life and his righteousness, you have access to the throne room of God. And you are closer to him in that moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, purchased by his blood, than any priest, any prophet, any prophecy, any other of that stuff. You have the fulfillment. And it's by faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. Why? Because God became one of us. He came to us. We don't go to him. We don't attain to Him. We don't climb a ladder. We don't earn anything. And on top of that, the Lord is revealing His Trinity here. Just if you didn't think He was revealing Himself enough, what does it say? God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, placed Jesus in Mary's womb. The Trinity working in perfect unison. The triune being, separate but equal, the same and yet different. Well, Mike, are you going to explain that to us? I'm not explaining that either. I have no idea. God is who he is. He sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And he descended. He became a man. He fulfilled the scriptures, performed the miracles, gave us the scriptures, all these things to reveal to us that when he died on a cross and he rose again for our sins, we are saved. And that all of history is his story. He is the creator Imagine holding that baby in your hands. But you wouldn't know just by looking at him because he was just a baby. He's 100% human. I'm going to use a fancy word, but you Bible scholars, you're ready for it. It's called the hypostatic union. It just means that he's 100% God and he's 100% man in the same body. You're like, that's 200%. I know. It's pretty incredible. Again, I don't know when the divinity stops and the humanity starts and vice versa. But as we go through the Gospel of Matthew together, this good news, and we understand what we have as Christians and who it is that we follow and what he's done for us and what he's doing through us, we will have a better understanding of who he really is instead of that baggage that we brought. Oh, Jesus, let me tell you who you are. And as you see in the Gospel of Matthew, many people do. I'm going to let you in on a secret. The king of kings does whatever he wants. And it's up to us to be conformed into his image, to be more like him. Well, here in verses 24 through 25, it says, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. This is how this glorious king reveals himself. This is his grand entrance. He could have come down on a fiery chariot. He could have opened the heavens. He could have had angels place him down. He could have changed the color of the whole sky. He could have had the text of the scripture written in the heaven. He could have reassembled the stars to point. But he enters into the world the same way that you and I enter into the world. The King of Kings. He is one of us, God among us, God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus, who every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Through him all things were created, all things that exist, that consist, through him, and he did it so that he could save us. And nothing has changed. He still comes to us in our inadequacies. He comes to us in our sinful nature and in our brokenness. And no man seeks after God, no, not one, but he steps down from heaven and he comes to us to share this path, to share with him. That's how our journey through the book of Matthew is going to. we want to know him for who he is my prayer is that as we go through matthew we have a deeper understanding of him and we're drawn closer and closer to him that's why he came he came that we might know him and then we're saved we're filled with his spirit he redeems us and makes us new and then he sends us into the world to do what to preach the gospel the good news, to share this message of who he is and that way of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for how you reveal yourself. We thank you for the pages of history. We thank you for all of creation, the stars, the firmament, the handiwork, all of it pointing to what we have in you by faith alone. You've covered us in your blood and in your righteousness and filled us with your spirit. You made us new. Help us to love you more, to grow in you more, to be excited about your word as you reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're up here to pray with you, intercede with you. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come on up. We can fix that right now. God bless you and have a wonderful week.